is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. The former Chief Executive of the NT Cattlemen's Association, Tracy Hayes, is the new chair of the Royal Flying Doctor Service of Australia. The RFDS has been that first person you see at a critical time um, when you really need help. And as recently as uh, five or six months ago, the RFDS conducted a a medivac uh, for one of my sons. Yeah, we'll speak to Tracy in a moment about her new role. Also today, an update on the court battle between Power and Water and gas company ENI. And what a mystery, hey? Rangers in Arnhem Land stumble across a large capsized vessel in seas near Millingimby. So we're unsure, unsure where the where the you know, the sort of um, unfortunate incident has happened and where the crew might be as well. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour and a reminder if you need to duck out of the paddock for whatever reason or maybe you're about to run out of reception on the highway, you can always download our podcast and listen at a time that suits you. Northern Territory Parliament resumes this week and there's a piece of legislation sitting up in that big white building that has got the commercial seafood industry concerned. The NT government is looking to amend the NT's Fisheries Act and according to the NT Seafood Council, the legislation has been rushed, it has created uncertainty and it's calling for the bill to be withdrawn. Catherine Winchester is the Chief Executive of the NT Seafood Council. Catherine, can you explain to us what's happening and why you're concerned? Yeah, so when the government wants to amend a piece of legislation, they put forward uh, a bill to to Parliament and uh, the government's wanting to change the Fisheries Act. So um, sitting uh, in front of the Legislative Assembly is something called the Fisheries Legislation Amendment Bill 2022 and we're seeking the government to withdraw that to um, make sure that they do the proper consultation and take the time to get that right rather than just signing off on something that we believe has been very hastily put together and hasn't properly uh, consulted and engaged with the Seafood Council and other key stakeholders. Has there been any consultation with the Seafood Council? There has been some and there should have been some right in at the start of 2020. So when the Northern Territory Government and the Northern Land Council entered an action plan agreement, um, we sought uh, confirmation from the Chief Minister at the time that we would be engaged in the regulatory reform and we got commitments for early and thorough uh, engagement um, throughout this regulatory reform. But instead it took 17 months. In May we got delivered a draft bill um, which is almost what's landed in the Legislative Assembly at the moment. Um, We had four weeks to respond with our um, feedback. It then took three months for the government to get back to us on our key concerns. And then one month later after that feedback, here it is in front of the Legislative Assembly and our concerns are um, still there. We are still very unsure as to how this is going to impact um, on our industry, um, on the on the management of the fisheries resource, how decisions are going to be made. So, yeah, we're very concerned that the process has been rushed and the consultation that has happened, we welcome, but we never expected it to um, uh, be put forward without resolving all the issues. Um, and we're really concerned about what the legal implications of that might be. Um, and we don't want to learn the hard way. 
Are you able to give us a couple of examples of, of what's in this bill that has your members concerned? Yeah, so one of the key concerns is, I guess, that the proposed changes have an effect beyond the area that the Blue Mud Bay High Court um, decision refers to and that it actually affects all NT waters because they're relating um, interest to the aquatic resource itself. So the government agree with us that, yes, this is going to have an impact on all NT waters, but what does that mean? Um, we're not really sure what... Um, uh, impact that would have on decisions or actions um, and I guess the other example in there is the Fisheries Act has um, three key objects um, with the whole purpose of, of the Fisheries Act and, and what it's um, setting out to do. The government's looking to introduce um, another object and we're really concerned that it creates tension between the existing objects and that new object. Um, in that the existing objects, um, one of those is for promotion of fairness, equity and access um, for everyone, but the new object is um, making sure that acknowledgement of rights, interests and resources of significance is taken into account, and we're concerned that that's creating some positive discrimination in, in favour of one stakeholder group over all others. So pretty serious concerns. Um, we need to understand how it's going to actually impact decisions, how those decisions need to be made. Um, and we don't want there to be tension within our Fisheries Act. Um, we want this done so that the acknowledgement of rights and interests um, isn't a scary thing, um, that people do actually know what the future holds, and we just don't at the moment. Have you raised these concerns with the NLC, and what do they think of it? Uh, yeah, look, we've raised these concerns with with every stakeholder, including the government and including the Northern Land Council. Um, and the Northern Land Council have heard our concerns, but, but what's most disappointing is that rather than getting everyone in the room together to talk through these concerns, which the government did indicate they were going to do, it just hasn't happened. So we haven't had the opportunity to hear um, each other's stakeholders' perspectives of what are we trying to achieve, what does the future look like, look like and that's what we're calling for as well we want this bill to be withdrawn um, we want to get it right we want to get people around the table we want to we want to work together to co-design what does the future of, of the management of fisheries resources look like in the territory um, and we're really keen for that step to to happen we need to get this right we can't afford um, to make an amendment and then realize later on it has negative implications or unintended consequences that just were never part of the mix this has been going for 14 years. What's going wrong? Why are there so many stuff-ups in this process? <laughs> so many stuff-ups. <laughs> Honestly, politics gets involved. Um, so right now we know that um, uh, the Northern Land Council has advised us that Section 19 permits is what's needed for our industry going forward to access um, uh, waters overlying Aboriginal land. Um, so we want to concentrate on that. We want to get that right. But the politics that gets involved to, to get other things um, delivered through this process is, is really a distraction. And um, there's other processes such as the Aboriginal Land Rights Act um, with other areas to be granted. And um, it's just concentrate on one thing at a time. Let's deliver, for example, the Section 19 permits and that smooth transition uh, where industry can work um, collaboratively with the land councils get those agreements in place that make sense to the community and that they're aware of what's happening or, and they're making the decisions about what's happening, um, but to give some certainty to industry. But 
when you try to do numerous things and and there's political games being played with it it's it's just a bit of a football that gets kicked around and we don't actually achieve anything for for anyone right now um, we got businesses really questioning the future of their um, uh, presence in the territory because they're just not sure what the future looks like and equally those um, people out on community have been waiting 14 years to see a change and they're not seeing anything either so get the politics out of it and let's just get on with the, the job of permits for the seafood uh, industry that's one element of it but let's also get in the room and figure out what the fisheries act needs to look like going forward so that we can all be confident in the future thanks for your time on the country hour thanks matt Catherine winchester who is the chief executive of the nt seafood council so just to remind you here in july 2008 australia's high court ruled that traditional owners had exclusive access rights to intertidal waters the intertidal zones at the time it was regarded as the most significant ruling for Aboriginal landowners since Mabo. 14 years have passed, and you wonder what's been achieved during that time. So today, you've got the NT Seafood Industry Council calling for this fisheries legislation amendment bill to be withdrawn. NT Parliament is sitting this week. And the Seafood Council doesn't want this piece of paper to enter the halls. Here at the Country Hour, we've sought comment from Minister Paul Kirby. He is the Minister for Fisheries. And we were keen to get his thoughts on this. But we were told by the NT government to instead try and seek comment from Minister Selena Yubo, who is the Territory's Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. And it's actually her who is introducing this bill to Parliament. So we have sought comment from Minister Yubo as well and are yet to receive a, an opportunity. So we'll keep trying. We will keep trying. And meanwhile, the Northern Land Council, we have sent a message to it this morning to try and seek an opportunity for an interview and they haven't had much luck yet. I'll share with you a little bit from its press release that it put out late on Friday. The headline was Critical Milestone Approaches for Blue Mud Bay. And it said that the Blue Mud Bay Implementation Action Plan was signed by the Northern Land Council and NT Government in mid-2020. And key elements included arrangements for access to intertidal waters for recreational fishers and amendments to the Fisheries Act. And the chair, Samuel bush Blennessy said, unfortunately, the NT government has been dragging the chain for the past two years. We have missed key milestones and are worried they won't keep their word, is the press release from the Northern Land Council. NT Seafood Council saying that the amendment bill has been rushed and poorly communicated. Meanwhile, the Northern Land Council says that the government's dragging the chain and has missed key milestones. 14 years since Blue Mud Bay decision. And this is where it's at. Hi, my name's Savannah Phillip. I work at Humtadoo Barramundi. We're currently feeding thousands of baby barramundi right now and you're listening to the Country Hour. Our text number here at the Country Hour is 0487 99 1057. If you want to join the conversation this afternoon, 0487 99 1057. It is Oz Music Month here on the ABC. I've got a cracking tune here, care of Tommy Curtin and Luke O'Shea. And up next, you'll hear from Tracy Hayes.
who is the new chair of the Royal Flying Doctor Service of Australia. It's a quarter to one and you are tuned into the Country Hour. Tracy Hayes from the Northern Territory is the new chair of the Royal Flying Doctor Service of Australia. Tracy is the former chief executive of the NT Cattlemen's Association. She's been involved in the cattle industry, especially around Central Australia, for years. I spoke to Tracy earlier this morning to learn how this new role came about. Well, I, I think uh, this journey really started uh, right from my very early years, having grown up on the Strzelecki track and then later um, the Udnadatta track and then, of course, uh, many years in Central Australia. All of that was time spent in the RFDS heartland and having to avail ourselves of their services on, on many an occasion. It's a, an organisation I think I, like many Australians, um, have a very strong affinity for. So when the opportunity um, came up for uh, me to take on the role as, as chair of the RFBS of Australia, it was really an, um, a, such a fantastic alignment a of I guess my skill set that I've uh, learnt along the way in corporate world um, and a very strong alignment with um, my background and and the bush and those regions of the country that I hold very dear. Your family and you yourself have relied on the RFDS over the years are you happy to share a few stories with us? Oh yes Matt there's been many an occasion I think that certainly in our greatest hour of need and and I'd go so far as to speak for others uh, when I describe it that way that the RFDS has been that uh, face that that first person you see at a critical time um, when you really need help and uh, and as recently as uh, five or six months ago um, the RFDS conducted a, a medivac uh, for one of my sons, unfortunately, had been injured in uh, on a motorbike uh, out in the paddock, pretty well in the middle of nowhere. So, um, yeah, again, the RFDS was there to um, assist and provide that essential care when you need it the most. Is he okay? Uh, yes, he's okay. He's uh, he's uh, back on his feet and uh, and back at work. He's okay, but it uh, you know is often would be a different story for many if uh, that service, that vital um, service that's uh, desperately needed in the bush, uh, if it wasn't there, it'd be a, a different story for many. Going forward, what sort of challenges does the RFDS face at the moment, Tracy? Well, look, I think um, uh, the RFDS is fundamentally a charity and um, and highly uh, reliant on the support of the community. So that's uh, going to be uh, not only obviously um, the very important uh, day-to-day sort of business requirements of, of chairing such a board, the, the governance and um, the internal machinations, of course, the outward-facing part is our connection to the community and um, continuing to raise ever-needed funds um, for the charity arm of the business and uh, and keep that connection strong with the community because uh, they it certainly goes a long way to assist them in, in providing the vital and essential services out on the ground. And... 
with your connections to the cattle industry, have you already had feedback from that community on, on what they'd love to see from their RFDS? Oh, most certainly, Matt. And look, to be honest, I've you know, um, probably lived and breathed this stuff for many years and have a really strong understanding of of what we need out in rural and regional areas and what we continue to need. Um, you know, there's a growing demand, I think, in the delivery of primary health care services um, out on the ground. It's it's no surprise that it's very, very difficult to get GP clinics in, in um, r- rural and remote towns and, and uh, the ever-growing uh, need um, for mental health care um, out in the bush. So they're just a couple off the top of my head that, um, of course, uh, are very prominent on our um, list of areas that we're keen to focus on. And it was only in recent times, wasn't it, that the RFDS was, was flying around two stations and delivering the, the COVID vaccines and, and getting involved in that way? Yes, that's right. They were critical in the delivery of uh, support um, to assist people with the with the global pandemic. Of course, it's not easy. Um, a mobility was a, was an issue in getting around the country, but also getting access to vaccines. So, there, you know, there's it's probably a topic that we could talk on for many hours. And uh, but the COVID vaccine and their agility and ability to deliver that and get out on the ground and mobilise that, that service very quickly. I think is testament to the type of um, service that the RFDS can deliver. Well done on the appointment and thanks so much for your time on the Country Hour. Yeah, thanks very much, Matt. That is Tracy Hayes, former Chief Executive of the NT Cattlemen's Association and the new Chair of the Royal Flying Doctors Service of Australia. Well done to Tracy. Speaking of new appointments, congratulations also to Ali Quintana, who has been promoted to manager of Alloa Station in Queensland. Alloa, owned by Consolidated Pastoral Company. Ali's been working at Newcastle Waters and is now the manager of Alloa. Well done to her. Half a step forward, put to the pitch. Yeah, yeah. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. This is party time. On the ABC Listen app. Every ball. Punching this through the offside. Every catch. That is an extraordinary catch. Every wicket. Bowling! Wicket's tumbling. Live. Another hundred. And ad free. Oh, wow. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. Live on the ABC Listen app. It is nine minutes to one o'clock here on the Country Hour. Let's talk about the flooding in the southeast of this nation and the damage it is causing to infrastructure. The other day there was an estimate that the road funding needed just in New South Wales to fix everything up will go beyond $2.5 billion. That's just in New South Wales. As we go to air this afternoon, flooding means there's some key transport routes closed. Countless country roads have been badly damaged and will take weeks, maybe longer, to patch up and fix up and it's causing a lot of problems for trucking companies. GTS Freight Management's National Operations Manager Ben Fenner says it's a huge logistical challenge for his company at the moment. He's got trucks covering something like 160,000 kilometres, and they're spending a lot of extra diesel going the long way around at the moment. With the Sturt Highway closed to all traffic west of Hay, uh, meaning there's significant diversions in place to Sydney and Brisbane, 
um, from Mildura and Adelaide, which was predominantly where we operate out of. Um, generally, our trucks operate via the new highway. However, we're now heading south of Barranald, uh, across to Deniliquin, up into Wagga and on to Brisbane for there, adding about 400 kilometres um, tra uh, travel time, I should say, for one way. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty challenging. Have you ever come across anything like this before in the time that you've been in the trucking industry? I've spent 11 years here at GTS and um, I haven't seen anything like it myself and the people I talk to who are more experienced around me share similar stories. So we've faced a lot of adversity in the past with flooding and fire and all those sorts of things but this is certainly shaping as the biggest um, weather event I've dealt with in my time here. We're sitting in what is normally your boardroom. What's happening in here at the moment? And to paint a picture, we're staring at a big screen, which is essentially the live traffic websites that New South Wales operates, so you can see what conditions are like where you've got vehicles. Yeah, it's normally a boardroom for business, but I've, uh, I've hijacked that as in my role from now, so it's a bit of a control centre for us. Um, we've got fantastic tools with live traffic. Um, we've got the RMS, local police, who are really really helping us and giving us information as fast as they possibly can. But yeah, a lot of time is spent here assessing what roads may be out of action or potentially be coming out of action and um, yeah, it allows us to be a little more agile and make better decisions. Now I imagine that road conditions don't change nine to five Monday to Friday. So what is a typical workday looking like for you? We work in uh, massive hours from Everyone from our director um, right through our business, our team's working incredibly hard. Um, our drivers are working as hard as they possibly can, safely and legally. Um, but, yeah, we're all uh, working around the clock. How do you keep on top of this and know what's going on? Yeah, that's, that's my role predominantly now. I've basically, basically turned into watching weather all the time and pre preparing for the next route and next contingency and having that prepared for, ready for my team to go in case we get another constraint or, or road closure or diversion. So that's predominantly my role now is um, allowing us to be set up for success and to do the job safely by preparing accordingly. Diesel isn't cheap at the moment. If you're talking about a truck going to Brisbane having to do an extra 400 kilometres, there must be huge additional costs placed on the business? There are significant commercial impacts, there's, there's no doubt about it. The fuel price in this country is still really volatile, um, so we've got to be agile with fuel levies, those sorts of things, but the additional um, distances travelled now, we, we have to start to share some of that cost. We can't absorb that as a business, and the rest of the industry will be doing the same thing, so it's just another, another challenge we have to face, but um, we can't wear it all, unfortunately. Having the roads open is one thing, but having them in a condition that you can probably travel on is another. What kind of situations are your drivers coming across and are they documenting that for you along the way? They are, uh, within reason. Um, we, we ask them to focus on their tasks solely, but um, our, all of our trucks are fitted with um, front-facing front and rear-facing cameras so we can assess um, road conditions at a, from a live, live level, which is fantastic um, with, with, with that feature. Um, but the, the images we see of potholes, parts of roads missing, uh, it's fairly confronting and for it's, it's quite unsafe for a lot of road users. Um, so we just try and do our best, but our average, average speeds of our vehicles are well down and, and that's by design just to do the job safely. 
in normal conditions, freight would also be moved by rail. Is much of that still happening at the moment, given that some train lines have also been affected by flooding? Rail is severely impacted at the moment, and a lot of this country's freight does operate via rail, predominantly to the west, but rail tracks are really, really impacted, and we've, we've seen a big demand for our services to head to the west um, where normally the rail providers would head. So, yeah, there's big impacts. This would normally be a hugely busy time for you as companies get ready for Christmas. They obviously need to have stock on their shelves to sell. Is that putting you under even more pressure? We're 25 working days from Christmas Day, so this industry is very, very much under the pump at this time of the year in a normal operating time. Our customers are fantastic. We have great relationships and partnerships. Um, they, they allow us additional travel times, etc., etc., but the, the, the whole network is disrupted. So the, from us um, to a distribution centre right down to the um, supermarket shelf, everyone's feeling the pinch. But, um, yeah, we've got our morale still quite high. There's some fantastic people in our organisation and the industry uh, who are all working very hard. But, yeah, some people are getting a little bit tired, but we'll be right. We'll get there. GTS Freight Management's National Operations Manager Ben Fenner speaking there to the Country Hours Kelly Hollingsworth. The road network in New South Wales and Victoria, an absolute mess. I see one of the other headlines today in New South Wales is that country councils are calling on state and federal government to help fund billions of dollars in flood road repairs, saying the $50 million from the state government will be nowhere near enough. G'day, I'm Jermaine. G'day, I'm Caleb. And we're from Territory Bees. We're out here in Darwin's rural area attending to some hives and you're listening to The Country Hour. The Environment Centre NT says the science behind the NT government's draft water allocation plan for the Georgina and Wiso basins is not clear. On Friday, the government released this plan, which covers a large part of the Territory. We're talking most of the Barkley, the Sturt Plateau, the Beedaloo Basin. It's a really large area. And the amount of water set aside for agriculture, mining and gas industries, it is also large. We're talking over 260,000 megalitres per year. Here's the Environment Centre's Kirsty Howie. We're very concerned, first of all, at the quantity of water that's been set aside uh, as the uh, amount of water that can be extracted by industry. So that's in the order of 262 billion litres of water per year. Uh, That's a huge amount of water uh, that we don't think uh, has been granted in any water allocation plan in the Territory's history. We're also very concerned that this water allocation plan doesn't seem to provide any detail at all about how key dependencies such as Matarinka Matarinka Hot Springs, Bitter Springs and the Roper River, which we know rely on discharges from this interconnected aquifer, will be protected. There's nothing to indicate how this yield is in fact sustainable. Yeah, and can we talk a bit about the 40% recharge figure? Can you explain what the government is saying by that? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, one way to allocate water is to look at a proportion of the recharge of the water that's going into the aquifer. And that usually happens through rainfall. Uh, But there are other ways in which an aquifer can can fill up. 
So what the department has done is to estimate that you can take out 40% of the annual recharge of water that's going into the aquifer. Uh, and the question is, is that sustainable? We would say that that is not a sustainable level of take. It's double what you can take in the top end zone, for instance, under those rules, which are commonly called the 80-20 rule. And uh, also, there's nothing to indicate, as far as we can see, that taking that amount of water is sustainable, noting that the recharge in these aquifers south of the major rivers is very episodic, uh, it's very infrequent, and there's a lot of uncertainty about these figures. So it seems to us that what's happened is an approach has been taken that is far from precautionary and may actually impact flows into the Roper uh, into Mataranka Hot Springs, into Bitter Springs, and these iconic places that Territorians love so much. Um, and Kirsty, the Georgina Wiso area, it is a huge area. I believe it's more than twice the size of Tasmania. Uh, do you think that warrants, you know, the ability to allocate lots and lots of water in this instance? Look, there's it's a huge, huge amount of uh, land. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But uh, the the question is always how much can be taken sustainably out of the aquifer. And what we know about this semi-arid system is that the recharge going into the aquifer is actually quite low. And therefore, you can't take out huge amounts of water without significantly impacting uh, dependencies, groundwater-dependent ecosystems, wetlands, trees, soakages, uh, without causing damage so you have to be extremely careful in these arid zone areas where recharge is episodic and uh, there's not a lot of rainfall going into these aquifers on a regular basis. And also, what about the government allocating 10 gigalitres for petroleum activities? I believe this is the first time the government has allocated an amount specifically for petroleum activities in a water plan. What do you make of that? Well, uh, it's certainly a lot of water. It's around 10 billion litres of water per year. Uh, where that figure has come from, we're not sure. It might be from the gas industry itself. And from our understanding from the Pepper Inquiry, it is in fact double what the industry said it would need and what the Pepper Inquiry estimated the industry would need if it was to move to production. So we really query uh, that amount of water and why it's been allocated. It's just not clear to us. But then again, the whole plan is a bit of a mystery. That is Kirsty Howie, the Executive Director of the Environment Centre NT, speaking to Samantha Dick. The Minister for Environment and Water Security, Lauren Moss, was on ABC Radio this morning and was asked why 40% of the Georgina Wiso's annual recharge was getting set aside for use by industries and not the 80-20 rule that a lot of people would be familiar with in the top end. This was the Minister's response. So the 80-20 rule exists within the water allocation framework, which is the way in which the water um, controller will make decisions outside of a water allocation plan. So what we are doing within this region is developing a water allocation plan that will look at more in-depth science around how that aquifer um, acts different points. There's actually different, it, it acts in different ways across that huge area and will create a plan based on the science for that particular aquifer. So um, 
again, it's it's really important, especially when um, there will be areas across the Northern Territory where there isn't much interest in investment, um, where there aren't ever going to be many applications to make water decisions. And in that instance where there might be a decision to be made, it will be made within the water allocation framework. But for this particular area where we're expecting there will be lots of interest, it will be made within the water allocation plan framework. Oh, it's 10,000 megalitres for petroleum activities. It's the first time that such an allocation has been made in a water plan. So it is uh, it is obviously an admission that fracking is going to be going ahead, even though all of those recommendations for the PEPA inquiry have yet to be met. So is that doubling of the water allocation, is that to allow fracking? Have you started, especially when you've just said it's going to invest in the best scientific inquiry that can be found, shouldn't that have already happened, all the best scientific endeavours to come up with that figure? So in terms of the the fracking question, that has obviously the petroleum activities has been identified as a beneficial use for that water resource. And absolutely, that's something that we recognise is an activity that people want to undertake in the Beedaloo. And so that has been accounted for within this water allocation plan, but it's also a much smaller proposed amount than, say, agriculture or some of the other beneficial uses for water in the area. So the purpose of a water allocation plan is to look at what might be available for all water users across a whole range of different areas, whether it's for obviously drinking um, cultural environment as the most important strategic Aboriginal water reserves for Aboriginal economic development, and then your agribusiness and your industry uses. So uh, it does absolutely recognise that there will be demand for petroleum activities within that region. As Lauren Moss, who's the Territory's Minister for Environment and Water Security, speaking to Joe Laverty, if you missed the Country Hour on Friday, you missed a good one. On this topic in particular, we spoke to the NT's Executive Director of Water Resources, Amy Dysart, and also Paul Burke from the Chief Executive of the NT Farmers Association. So if you missed all of that, it'll be up on our podcast. G'day folks, I'm Darcy Skur. I'm the Farm Supervisor at Pinata Farms Catherine here in Manarinka. I'm a third generation farmer for a family owned business and company. So yeah, I'm probably one of the guys out there and yeah, you listen to the country hour. It's 15 past one in a moment. I'll be giving you an update on the legal battle between Power and Water and the gas company ENI. But let's go to the Weather Bureau. We've found the Bureau. Rebecca Patrick, good afternoon to you. G'day, Matt. There's a bit going on. Um, but maybe let's just start on the rainfall figures for the, for the weekend because there were some nice storms around. What can you tell us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the highest number I've seen was from Point Fawcett on the Tiwis with 76 millimetres. Um, Upper Adelaide River had 65, Haywood Creek 59. Um, so some reasonable totals around the north. Um, Darwin Rural Area, McMinn's Lagoon came in with 48 for the weekend. Um, also around the Gregory District had some reasonable rainfall through there as well. West Baines River with 59 um, and Large Manu 50 millimetres. Um, and yeah, Friday and Saturday um, we heard some showers and storms through the south as well. Um, so uh, was it Mount Denison came through with 32 millimetres. Wow. 
Yeah, and generally 10 to 15 um, around the Alice Springs area as well. So some some good rainfall right throughout the Territory. On social media, Nummel Nummel stations reporting 195 millimetres over five days and Mistake Creek Station, which is right out on the WANT border, is celebrating 98 millimetres of rainfall. And this afternoon there's quite a bit of colour around that border country back, sort of near, you know, Kununurra, Wyndham, and looks like it's heading towards the Territory. What can you tell us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there has been some big thunderstorms across the Kimberley uh, over the last 24 hours. They've had some really large rainfall totals as well through there. Um, we do have a line, as you said, um, moving down through the Kimberley towards that uh, western border of the of the Territory, um, so expecting some, some shower and storm activity there. Also on the other side of the Territory, we've had um, some storms move, move through the Gulf of Carpentaria uh, and then now down um, uh, around the Burralula area, well, have moved through there uh, earlier today. Um, so we have seen some, some rainfall through that area as well, so that's on its way moving into the northern Barclay district this afternoon. Wow. And yeah. so in terms of rainfall this week, what, what are some of the totals the Bureau's expecting? Um, so, yeah, we're still expecting to see some reasonable rainfall around the, particularly the western top end and Gregory District over the next few days. Um, probably we'll start to, to fall off a little bit from midweek up here in the north. Um, in southern parts of the Territory, um, we are... Also getting a bit of a cloud band developing um, across the central Australian area. Um, probably not too much rain in it today, just maybe a little bit of a light sprinkle, um, but expecting that cloud band to thicken up um, Tuesday, Wednesday. So particularly the southern Tanami district um, could be seeing some reasonable totals, um, sort of 10 to 20 millimetres um, on Tuesday and Wednesday. So some, some rain down there as well. My goodness. Anything else we need to be aware of this afternoon? Uh, I think that's the main things. Again, we've still got um, chance of heavy falls with thunderstorms, so keep an eye out for any warnings in the area. Yeah, okay. Um, lovely to hear from you, Beck. I'm pleased we got in touch. Thanks for your time. No worries. Thanks, Matt. That is Rebecca Patrick there at the Weather Bureau. An interesting week ahead. I've got a text here from Darby from the Do, who says it's pouring down on Berrimer Road this afternoon. Yeah, the radar really starting to light up, really starting to light up. Just in regards to our earlier story about roads and all the money that will be needed to patch up the system in New South Wales and Victoria, someone here says, why aren't the fossil fuel industries being called upon to help fix up these disasters? Someone else here on the text. No names attached to these text messages. Come on, you need to put the name and where, you, where you're calling from. Someone here says, when this government says that they're opening things up to public consultation, that is code for we have made up our mind and it's going ahead, says someone. Sam and Catherine. Sam says this water story is a case of manipulating science to meet industry requirements rather than science informing sustainable yields of a system. Have we learnt nothing from the Murray-Darling fiasco? I fear for my kids' future in the Northern Territory, says Sam in Catherine. It is 20 past one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. Dan, a story we've been following closely on the Country Hour, are the issues out in the black tip gas field and 
part of that is a court battle that's happening between Power and Water Corp in the Northern Territory and the big gas company ENI. You've got an update for us. What can you tell us? Yeah, well, the issues that uh, has been happening out in the black tip gas field is that the supply that is coming out of that field has been dropping and dropping and dropping over the last year or so. It's dropped by 50% or so. It's one of the reasons why the gas pipeline from Tennant to Mount Isa has stopped. Yeah, it's it's stopped. Um, and uh, the... The owner of the Black Dip gas field, E&I, has a contract, a very long 25-year contract with Power and Water to supply gas, um, which is used to generate electricity here in the top end. Um, so because of those issues, um, Power and Water has actually taken uh, E&I to the WA Supreme Court, uh, claiming that it has breached its contract by uh, not uh, supplying enough gas. Now, court documents um, filed to WA Supreme Court show that Paramore had actually first wrote to ENI about gas supply issues way back in April 2021. Um, from then on, uh, nothing changed. The supply issues continued. Uh, the NT government actually set up a weekly meeting with ENI and Paramore to keep check on gas supply issues. And as we heard, Paramore had actually had to go and buy gas from other LNG exporters uh, to make sure it could keep the lights on and it's likely still doing that today. Um, but yeah, before the WA Supreme Court, um, Power and Water's Antony Murphy gave evidence that uh, the corporation was concerned that e and was not giving Power and Water the full picture about the issue mm-hmm. and that the curtailment of gas may represent an ongoing and long-term problem for supplies from the black tip field. Um, E&I's argument in court was that uh, the supply issues was a result of a force majeure, so unforeseeable circumstances out of its control that prevented it fulfilling its contract saying it wasn't its fault. Um, Power and Water had asked for the judge to make a decision on relief, basically getting some sort of compensation for this alleged breach of contract, Um, but Justice Allenson made the decision to send the two parties to an independent arbitrator to try and sort the issue out. So um, they're before that arbitrator at the moment. How long that will take to sort things out between these two parties, unsure. If they can't resolve it, this dispute before the arbitrator, it'll head back to the WA Supreme Court. Gee, okay. What a mess. What a mess. What a mess. Uh, Dan, we're about to learn about this large capsized vessel that's been found floating in waters sort of close to Millingimby off the Arnhem coast there. And we've got a text here from from someone who, well, like the rest of the world, wants some answers on that floating steel box that, you know, you broke that story. When was that? Two, three months ago now. And someone here says, Matt, talking about floating vessels, what's in the box? Do you have any floating steel box updates for us? Uh, No, sadly. Ah. uh, As far as I'm aware, it is still floating somewhere, presumably. Last I heard, it was heading um, sort of southwesterly of, um, of Groot Island. So yep. who knows? It could be wind number on one. Make the phone calls. Yeah. Get a helicopter out there. You know, people are dying to find out. <laughs> All right. Thank you for the update. Hello, I'm Sonoma Dikari Rana. I'm CDU graduate, working as a technical officer in Native Rice Project. I love this job because um, there are so many opportunities to learn. Enjoy listening to Country Hour. And thank you to that person for sending in that message regarding the mysterious floating steel box. It's an important story. You've got to keep on top of it, Dan. Find some answers.
Meanwhile, have you seen the pictures of this one? A 25-metre long boat found floating upside down near Millingimby on the Arnhem Land coast. The vessel was first spotted by local fishos and it's believed to be an Indonesian vessel that capsized in some rough seas a couple of months ago. Crocodile Island's ranger, John Scooja, told Oliver Chaslin how he came across this boat in the first place. We heard stories from uh, local local people who I believe were out that way fishing that there was a, a, a sunken vessel um, and then we were produced photos. But that, we actually weren't told for about three or four days after it was initially seen out part northwest of an island called Marunga, which is about uh, 35 kilometres by boat from Millingimby. When we first went out, it was a, it's a very, very rough day. And from a fair way away, we could see a... Um, an, an unusual sort of shape. And as we got closer, we could see it was an upturned vessel uh, and difficult to tell at first what it was made from. Uh, it sort of looked wooden, but it was hard to hard to tell. And then when we got closer, it was actually wood covered in fiberglass, which I understand is fairly common in some of the older Indonesian vessels to try and keep them going and seal them up. Um, yep. It was about 15 metres long. Um, but very flat-bottomed and very wide and uh, unusual circular shape. Um, And so what, was it just sort of floating there? Like, what uh, what do you reckon happened? Well, the the vessel is um, inverted, so it's capsized, um, and we can see a whole lot of fishing net tangled in the propeller, so it's hard to say whether that's happened um, after the boat has capsized and it's just got tangled in the, the sort of the floating nets have sort of tangled in the propeller, or possibly that was a causative or a contributing um, factor to to it coming unstuck and eventually capsizing. There, there was an observation made by someone who looked at some of the photos who said it looks like the the nets around the prop are under tension, so they believe the prop was going when the when the nets got wrapped around it. Hmm. Okay, interesting. And and so what uh, what happened then? Like, who do you? I mean, you're out in your boat one day and you find a, a capsized boat. Like, who do you call? Uh, well, that was a question we asked ourselves. And so, uh, we, well, we we consulted with the the local traditional owners of of that island area uh, first, and then we call, I called uh, Border Force. I had a Border Force hotline and um, informed them. Um, and then we have someone from uh, Door here currently um, d- doing some training, and they they were very interested. Um, and we talked to a few other people from uh, the Department of Ag, Water and Environment. There's there's several possibilities, and and there's several things to consider. Uh, like we don't know exactly where the boat sank, so we don't know whether it's just floated into you know Australian waters a- as a wreck, or whether it was actively fishing or, or um, actively doing something else and then has come you know, capsized in Australian water. So we're unsure unsure where the where the you know the sort of um, unfortunate incident has happened and where the crew might be as well. Crocodile Islands Ranger John Scooger there. The Australian Maritime Safety Authorities told the ABC it is relatively certain where this boat is from, believing the wreck is an Indonesian vessel that capsized on rough seas just off the coast of West Papua in September, says an Indonesian company has reported one of its fishing boats with a crew of 24 people had capsized in some bad weather. 
that most of the crew were rescued, but that one man is still missing at sea. Now, what's going to happen to this vessel is not really clear. Authorities that the ABC spoke with about this boat were unable to say when or if the wreck would be retrieved. Both AMSAR and the Department of Environment, Parks and Water Security say it isn't within their responsibilities. Northern Territory Police say they're tracking the vessel until it can be safely accessed. So that's the latest on the big floating boat in waters off Millingimby. You can see photos for yourself if you head along to the ABC News website. That's all we've got time for on today's Country Hour. Keep it rural.